As you can imagine, as Molly and I approach our baby being born in December, we're going through a lot of names and a lot of name options. Now, I'm going to give you one uh, that we have not, dis- we have not we're, I'm not giving you one that we're going to actually choose, okay? But in the process of looking at names, you think of a lot of different things. And my little sister, uh, so, so, and another thing I'm, I'm concerned about is, is the meaning of names. I actually think that's something that we've lost. So I looked up my mother's middle name, which is also my oldest sister's middle name, which is Lynn, L-Y-N-N, which means near a lake or something like that. thought, that's unfortunate. I don't know if they even know that that's what that means, but there we are. Could be worse. You could be named Chandler, which means candle maker. My least favorite, my least favorite name meaning. Uh, but my little sister has a great name. She was named Bethany after, kind of after my great grandmother, whose name was Beth May. So Bethany. And then her middle name is Grace, which is good. And this morning I want to talk about grace because as we finish Paul's letter to the Galatians, I think what we see is this is a letter of grace. I think at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of central to what this letter is all about, is the grace of God lived out in the community of God, the church. Now, the problem is, is that historically at times, grace from Galatians has been distorted. So that people read or have read Galatians, not just as a letter of grace, but as a letter of a license to sin, a license to live however you want, because we are free. As Galatians itself says, Christ has set us free. Now, as we look at grace, we need to clarify that the grace offered in the book of Galatians is not cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a scholar in Germany. He's a theologian and a pastor. He's perhaps most well-known for his involvement in allegedly a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. Um, But he was known as one of a few faithful Christians in Germany who did not uh, affirm the ideology and the agenda of Nazism. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his writings, clarified the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And if you go and read his book, Discipleship, where he talks about the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about this distinction, you'll hear him give a lot of examples, and it's very good. You should should really find it and read it. However, I just want to note this distinction for a moment. In saying that cheap grace is the offer of life through Jesus, but costly grace is the author of death through Jesus and the offer of being born again to a new life. That's an important distinction. Life with Jesus, according to cheap grace, is perhaps walking down an aisle and saying a prayer with a mentor at the front, and then going on with the rest of your life exactly how you were living before. But this time, you have fire insurance. Costly grace is what Jesus calls us to. He says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I don't know about you, but denying myself and taking up my cross, and yes, even following Jesus, is not easy. And it's costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself wrote that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and 
die. Why? Because the only way to a new, born-again, everlasting life with God, a life that is actually devoted to Jesus, is to come and let your old self die. Let your old self be crucified. That's the grace that Paul is talking about. Grace, which is a free gift that you could not earn, but will cost you everything. And in a culture that is far from God, like the culture of Nazi Germany, it may cost you your very life, as it did Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith. This morning, we look at this text in Galatians chapter 6, and we see that Christ's church should display Christ's grace. And we see, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, that biblical accountability displays God's grace. Look at verse 1 here. Brothers, speaking to fellow Christians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. First of all, it's talking about someone who's caught in a transgression. What's that mean? Someone who has sinned. Someone who has disobeyed the word of God and his commands. Jesus wants us to follow God's commands. In Matthew 28, he says that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. He tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teach them to obey everything I commanded. Not just teach them to know that they are free to live however they want, but teach them to obey everything that I commanded. God, Jesus, in the flesh, wants us to obey him wants us to follow him. Now, the the good news is that our ability to follow him is not what our salvation hinges on, but it's still a good thing we ought to do. If we are truly in Christ, we should truly follow Christ. So, the one who has transgressed is one who has disobeyed God's word, one who has rebelled against God's good plan. But then it says this, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is so important. Uh, Church discipline without restoration, without gentleness, is just someone playing a power game where they're the king of their own castle. But church discipline, according to Scripture, always has as its purpose restoration. It's not about kicking people out to feel good about yourself. Removing people from the role so you can say, at least I'm not as bad as them. That, that, that is not the purpose of church discipline. Church discipline, biblical accountability, is coming to a brother or sister and saying, look what I see in God's word. Now here is what I've seen in your life. And I'm concerned these two things don't line up. And, and according to Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 18, we do that one-on-one. We go to the person we have a problem with. I've said this time and time again. Uh, everyone has a... Whenever a problem emerges anywhere, but especially the church, it seems like everyone speaks to everyone about it other than the one person, the one person who can do anything about it. Because if you have a problem with someone, there's only two people the problem can lie with, either them because they're disobeying God's word or you because you are. And it may just be that you looking to the scripture to find a reason to confront them, find out that you have no reason to confront them. And the problem lies with your own heart, your own thoughts, your own opinions. So biblical accountability is always for restoration. 
The goal should always be a brother or sister in Christ through repentance coming to a restored relationship with God. And, and, and the truth is sometimes that does not happen. And when that doesn't happen, you do have to do the hard thing. You do have to say, you're no longer a member here because we're not assured of your salvation. You cannot take of the Lord's Supper because we're concerned that you might be heaping judgment on yourself when you take and eat it. But the goal, even in that, is to say, but you should still be here. You should still come and hear the word of God preached, and we hope that you will repent and trust in Jesus. That's always the goal, restoration. But in, res- in restoring, in-, in seeking a- accountability, we also have to, as verse 1 says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It- it's important that we have room for self-inspection. We must inspect ourselves. Uh, a, a Puritan writer, Richard Rogers, who I've not read much of his stuff at all, uh, but he wrote a book called Holy Helps for a Godly Life, which is kind of an early uh, book on spiritual disciplines. He has a chapter in there on watchfulness. That's the word they used for self-inspection, watchfulness. And it was all about keeping watch on yourself. You know, something that we've lost in the Christian life, at least in the churches that we tend to be in, is watchfulness, self-inspection. And what's ironic is we don't stop inspecting when we stop inspecting ourselves. We just start inspecting everyone else. Isn't that a sad truth? That it's almost like we're wired to inspect ourselves and watch over our own souls and, and make sure that we're being accountable to God. And when we stop doing that, we continue to do the verb, we just change who the object of it is. We continue to inspect and be watchful and keep watch over everybody else. But we must be watchful of ourselves because we might be tempted. We might be tempted by the very thing we are confronting them about. And in confronting them, we might be tempted because we see the sin they're doing and find it enticing. I had uh, one elder in my home church, which was a, he was a colorful guy. Uh, he's kind of a rodeo guy. Great man of God. But he used to say, uh, and he, he said stuff like this all the time to kind of like rile up Christians who had been in church for 40 or 50 years. But he'd say to them, sin is fun. He said, if it wasn't fun, you wouldn't want to do it. He'd say, you know, eating broccoli isn't fun to me. I'm not tempted to eat broccoli. This is a real concern, though, when we confront people about our sin. If we are not in the place to do so, that we might actually be tempted and enticed by the very sin we're trying to take out of their lives. So we have to keep watch of ourselves. In verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is a picture, a picture of preparation. Preparation for a final judgment in which we have to stand before God, bearing our own load. We have to go before him with whatever our life has been, and it won't be a secret. It won't be something just between you and no one else. God will have seen it all. He will have heard it all. He will even know the thoughts that were behind it all. Paul wants us to be very clear 
that as we inspect ourselves, humility is inflamed within us. It's good to go to someone and confront them about their sin, but as we keep watch on ourselves, we actually can do so with a humble spirit, prepared to be gentle with them, knowing that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. We're prepared. We're prepared for the task of burden-bearing that needs to happen in the church, which I'll say more about in a moment, but we're also prepared for the final judgment. In Romans, Paul writes in chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the need to keep watch on ourselves, to self-inspect So that on the day of judgment, we are not surprised by what Jesus sees in us. And the good news this morning is that if we are in Christ, our sins, our former sins will be passed over. God will not judge us on account of them. But it's also important we bear in mind that the scripture is very clear that everyone will be judged by the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ when he returns. That's not something anyone escapes. And so we must keep watch on ourselves so that we do not fall into sin. We also see biblical accountability in verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Some of you may know this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, my favorite verses of Scripture, and not even because I think it's very well worded, not because I think it's very you know, theologically astute, anything like that. It's because this is something that every Christian should be doing for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Why? Because if you do, you will so fulfill the law of Christ. It's important in a letter where Paul has talked about how we're not obligated to follow the old law, the Mosaic law, when he says that there is a law we should follow, the law of Christ, we ought to listen And we see that what it looks like is bearing one another's burdens. Some of you may know this. uh, With the college and career Bible study, at the end we split up boys and girls and we spend time doing what I call the one another's, what we call a gospel culture. Taking the teaching of the gospel and making it apply to our lives. We do this in a couple men's and women's groups as well. And one of the things we do, of the two or three verses we note, is Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have a time, not just of simple prayer requests, which are good, but we specifically say, what are you being burdened with? What is a burden upon you that we can help bear? And if we're not able to bear it for you, we'll take it to Christ with you. Because he can bear it for us all. This is an important thing. And if you don't have anyone that you feel like you can sit down and say Galatians 6.2 and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another, I want you to let me know so that I can try to bring you into relationships in our church where that happens. That's something that we do to fulfill the law of Christ. Now looking at verses 6-10, through 10, we see a different way that God's grace is displayed through His church. We see that it is displayed through radical generosity. Look at verse 6. This is amazing. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
Now, that verse alone is amazing in the context of Galatians. It's amazing because this whole letter was brought about because of false teachers. Because there were false teachers coming into the church and teaching against the gospel that Paul had preached. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think Paul is saying you should be paying those guys. I don't know. This is just me maybe reading into the text. But it seems that there were teachers in Galatia, in the churches in Galatia, that Paul had established who were now being confronted with false teachers. And it may be that the false teacher said, stop paying those guys. They're not teaching you good stuff. Stop caring for them. Don't worry about it. I'm not sure. I just have a small inkling that Paul doesn't want you paying false teachers. He doesn't want you sharing good things with false teachers. Everywhere else in Scripture, false teachers aren't treated very well at all. And In fact, in one of John's letters, his whole argument is, if a false teacher comes to your door, that's the guy you don't let in your house. Uh, one of the other letters, he says, hey, if this person comes to your house, they're a good person. Bring them in. He had a specific person in mind. But in one of his other letters, he says, no, no, no. If a false teacher shows up, don't give them a room. Don't take care of them. Let them be. In, in the early... Uh, early Christian letter, well, not really a letter, early Christian writing, the Didache, which is a second century writing. It didn't make it into the New Testament, probably for good reasons, but it's very early. And in it, it talks about false teachers, and it says false teachers are the ones you don't let in your house. You don't take care of those guys. Paul himself writes in 1 Timothy 5 on this issue, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Now, I say all that to say this, that it's the elders who rule well who are considered worthy of double honor. It's the ones who are specifically dedicated to preaching and teaching. I think Paul, in writing that, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one teach, who teaches, I think he's saying that as Christians, we are generous with faithful teachers, not false teachers. We are generous with faithful teachers in, in what we give and what we provide and how we pay and how we care for them and their families. Now, I, I say this all with you know, the hint of irony that as a full-time employee of a church that maybe this has some something to do with me. But understanding that, he goes on from there, right? Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We reap according to what we sow. Uh, for just a moment, I'll quote Janice Davis, who I think quotes someone else when she says this, but she often says, You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. It's a foolish endeavor. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. God gives so much. How are you, you finite human being, you tiny little speck on the earth human being, how are you going to outgive God? You're not. Listen, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos could all come together and give away every dime and every possession they have. And they wouldn't come near to out-giving God. And we reap according to what we sow. That means we must persevere in our generosity. We must be generous even when it hurts. Actually, as Christians, I think we're called to be generous, especially when it hurts. 
I almost think that we're supposed to give to the point that it hurts, so that it is sacrificial, so that we are giving up something of ourselves to give. And I'm not talking right here, right now, just about giving to a pastor or a preacher. I'm not even talking about just giving a tithe or an offering to the church. I'm just talking about normal Christian charity, generosity, giving with all that we can. Now look at verse 9. 9 and 10 are great Bible verses to memorize as well, by the way. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We must persevere. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, these verses clarify that the radical generosity that displays God's grace is not just taking care of your pastor. So this is where I can move and say, okay, now we're not. (laughs) This has no incentive for me. It's not just about giving to your pastor, making sure they have all they need, which, by the way, I'm very thankful that you give to the church and provide for me and my family. I'm very thankful that, was it last Sunday? Yeah, last Sunday, that many of you came and gave at a baby shower for us so that we had something for our child. But that's not the whole point in radical Christian generosity. It's that we do good to everyone. Not just the person who you want to impress because he has a title like reverend or reverend doctor. It it always cracks me up when people tell stories of when the pastor came over after church to their house and you know, their mother would make sure the biggest piece of fried chicken was saved for him or something like that. It's not just those people that trying to impress them that we give radically. I think God will reward that, but he might also reward maybe even more when you give to people who expect absolutely nothing, that you, that you can expect absolutely nothing from in return. People that it benefits you zero, it benefits you none to help, that you don't even get street cred or a good reputation in your home or your community for helping. Those are the everyone that Paul is talking about here that we are to do good to. But especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is part of the reason that in our church, our benevolence uh, is primarily, and at least on a first-serve basis, given to members of our church. Because as believers in community together, we are trying to take care of one another. This is one of the reasons that, in fact, uh, I've had some conversations about tithing. I've even told people, when you're in need, you should continue to tithe to the church what you can. And then you should go to the church and ask for help. And you might think that's counterintuitive, but I think there is something to it, that you remain faithful in giving to the church, even while you are being served by receiving from the church. Then you get to participate in both blessings. Now that's not just, if you've ever been in a place where you stopped giving because you thought you couldn't financially and you received from the church, I'm not saying that you did something wrong, but it's one of the reasons I encourage that, is so that you can still give and you can still receive. It's a good thing. There's no shame in needing a helping hand. We've all been there. Literally, we have all been there. Uh, If you are not, you know, if you're of any age in this room, you were once a child, you were once a teenager, you were once a college student or a young adult working your first job, you needed help at some point. As much as you might want to think that you're a self-made man or woman, you're not. Uh, that's just a fool, a foolish thing to think. Everyone has to have help. And at the very least, 
you have to thank God. Because at the very least, you have your life because God gave it to you. Not because you earned it. You couldn't do anything. You didn't exist. You have the breath in your lungs right now because you were, you were given it by God. He breathed life into you. That's what it says of the first man, that he breathed life into him. You have the food that's in your stomach or the food in your house because God has provided for you. You have electricity on at your house right now because God has provided for you. And where you lack those things, if you are a Christian, if you are a member of this church, you know who you go to? God's people. They're the ones who will help you when you're in need. And if they're not, shame on them because that's the very people who should be doing that. I think Eugene Peterson also helps in his transla- translation clarify verse 9 and 10 because as it was pointed out to me earlier this week, there, there's a concern that it could mean that it's actually not that important that you do good to everyone because you're especially doing good to those who are of the household of faith. That actually your priority should be the church in exclusion of other people. But here Eugene Peterson translates it like this, and I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it. Right now, therefore, Every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. It's just a simple principle. We start with those we are closest to, those who are in need, that we are in closest proximity to and closest relationship with, and then we turn to help others. It's not to say we don't help others. It's just to say if you're going to go do a bunch of good works in the community, one of the things you can do first is make sure that everyone in your church has food and shelter and water that night. So radical generosity displays God's grace, a free gift. He has given us the gift of biblical accountability that we can all be prepared for the day of judgment. He has given us the gift of radical generosity that we all might have what we need to live another day and endure in the grace of God. But it's also Christ's crucifixion that displays God's grace. In verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, I don't know about you. If you have a Bible in front of you and you're looking at that, you might say, these are the same size letters as the ones right next to them. Well, that's because your publisher wasn't thinking of this when they they printed it. But in actually writing this, we, we know that Paul, at least this part of the letter, if not the whole thing, was writing with his own hand. He was wanting to drive this point home. So what's the point? He says this, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now he talked earlier about the circumcision party. Those who were coming to the Gentile Christians and trying to make the men be circumcised and then them keep the law. Here he clarifies that His opinion is they're only doing this because they want to avoid persecution. They don't want to be persecuted by the Jews for not practicing their religious practices. They're not wanting to be persecuted by the the Gentile, the Roman uh, pagans who would persecute them for not following the pagan rituals but also not being Jewish. So Paul is saying, though, that the circumcision party is vain. All they care about is appearances. All they care about is appearances. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. And it's not even that they want their own appearances to look good. It's that they just want to be able to point to other people and say their appearances look good. 
He says that they are uh, doing this here in verse 13. He says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. To be really clear, the circumcision, they're not even keeping the law. They're wanting you to do something they're not willing to do. This is what I, you know, this is, you know, you think about a good parent, generally speaking, this isn't true in all circumstances, is one who would not ask you to do anything that they're not willing to do themselves. Generally speaking, a good leader is one who will not ask you to do anything they're not willing to do themselves. And so, a good teacher, again, is one who will not ask you to do anything who they wouldn't do themselves. But these teachers are saying, go get circumcised and keep the law, even though we don't. Why? So they can go, oh, no, 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 that church, you don't need to persecute us. Look, they've all been circumcised and they're keeping the law. We're good. Pass on by. Don't worry about us. They want to boast in their flesh. But Paul says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does Paul boast in? He doesn't post on, boast in a bunch of trophies in a church somewhere, a bunch of salvation somewhere, a bunch of circumcision somewhere. Paul does not boast even in his own flesh. Paul boasts only in the cross of Jesus Christ, which he could not have accomplished. Paul could not go to the cross and die for the sin of the world. You cannot go to the cross and die for the sin of the world. The only thing that you have to boast in is the fact that as a gracious gift, God has given you a new life, a crucified life, in which the world has been crucified to you and you to the world. And now the only thing and the only one you have to live for is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There's nothing else. Everything else is vanity. And he goes on and he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We do not need to get circumcised. We need to be recreated. We do not need to make a good showing in the flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to come and regenerate our hearts. That we might be born again. That we might live to a living hope. That we might be made new. Not just nice. Not just polite, not just clean and well-dressed, not just well-articulated and well-employed, but new. We need to be made new. We need to be a new creation. Why? Because the old creation has been marred with sin and brokenness. Our old selves are marred with sin and brokenness. Our only hope is that God would make us New by the power of his spirit. So Paul tells us that circumcision and uncircumcision, all those things don't matter. A new creation is what matters. Are you a new creation? In verses 16 and 17, Paul takes the image of the crucifixion of Jesus and applies it to the church, applies it to the individual, and says that now they live cruciform lives, lives formed by the cross of Christ. He says in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. They want peace and mercy by looking good to the culture. 
by appeasing the culture around them, the society around them, so that they will not be persecuted. But the way they get true and ultimate and lasting peace and mercy is not by appeasing the world around them, but it's by denying it and coming to Jesus. And so he says you will get peace and mercy when you accept the crucifixion of Jesus for your sin. In verse 17 he says, From now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, this verse can be difficult to understand, verse 17, because some have used it to argue that capital S saints, those who have reached perfection, those who perform miracles, might physically actually receive the marks of Jesus on their wrist and in their ankles or on their feet. This is a tradition in some uh, Christian groups. But I don't, I'm just not convinced that that's really what Paul is about here. It's not that I want to take this verse and just say, well, let's just dismiss what they're saying. Because some were saying that Paul must have actually had these marks on his flesh. I think what Paul is, not, is saying is it's not about the marks on your flesh. If it was about that, he might be in favor of circumcision. I think what Paul is more concerned about is whether your life bears the crucifixion of Jesus, whether your life displays the grace and glory of God and the crucified life that you now live, where you are dead to the world and the world is dead to you, that you are dead to your sin and your sin is dead to you, where death itself is dead to you. I think that that's all that Paul's trying to say. That, that we as Christians ought to bear the marks of the crucifixion of Jesus. Not physical marks on our wrist or our feet, but the marks of a life that sometimes involves suffering, sometimes involves persecution, sometimes may even involve physical death here in this world. But a life nonetheless filled with bringing grace to people who don't deserve it. That's why we practice biblical accountability. That's why we practice radical generosity, because we are trying to display God's grace. We're trying to take the crucifixion of Jesus, the grace of God shown to us through that act, and bring it to bear in the lives of everyone around us, especially the church, but also the entirety of the world, starting in our community and going on from there. And to conclude with our time in Galatians with verse 18. This is a letter of grace. He begins it by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father. Even in a letter where Paul is especially mad at the church, he wants to share with them the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he ends with this blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. First Baptist Alcoa, may your spirit display God's grace. May you go out from these doors and live a cruciformed life, a life shaped by the cross of Jesus, a life filled with showing grace to people who don't deserve it, because you have already been shown abundant grace despite not deserving it. Because, as Romans says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our, 
Our mission is to take the love and grace and truth of God given to us and go out into this world and show them love and grace and truth. That begins here in the church. You should be showing love and grace and truth to your fellow church members. This morning, uh, I was with the Sunday school class with the students, and we were talking about James chapter 5, in which he says, do not complain about one another. And I said, how many of you have... How many of you think that Christians complain about each other sometimes? And quickly, quickly, so quickly, these little kids start shaking their heads. Well, not all of them are little. Some of them are teenagers, but you get the point. That's how clear it is to them. Now, to be fair, one of them, the first thing I asked is, what's, you know, why do you think that? And one of them said, because I complain about other Christians. <laughs> so I said, okay, fair enough. But the point is that we so fill our churches with complaints and grumbling and such a lack of grace, such a lack of love. We get hung up on someone else's sin or the, the thought that they might be sinning. We may not even be able to prove it from Scripture, but we think they're in the wrong. And we go and tell everyone else about it, and we create a ch- church that is just falling to pieces. Uh, steeples don't stand on churches like that. Or at least they don't stand for long. Churches like that destroy and devour one another. As Paul says in Galatians 5.15, they consume one another. They bite and devour one another. Paul says and said that your life in the church should display God's grace. So let me ask you just for a moment to think for yourself, are you showing grace to your fellow church members? Are Are you showing grace to those that you worship with? that you worship beside? Are you showing grace to them? Because if you can't show grace to them, those who like you have received the grace of Jesus, those who like you have been bought with his blood, how are you going to show grace to anyone outside there? If you can't show love and grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you think you have any chance of loving your neighbor as yourself? I don't think so. Jesus himself, when he prayed, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for those who would believe because of his disciples, and he prayed to the Father that they would be one as he and the Father were one. Why? So that the world may believe that God the Father had sent him. This world will not believe the Christian gospel and the Christian message if the Christian church spends all its time biting and devouring and consuming one another and not showing any grace. So if you want to show grace to them outside there, you best start showing grace to those inside here. If we are going to be a people of grace, if we're going to receive the grace of Jesus and live by the grace of Jesus, we have to live as people who show grace to one another. We have to be people who do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray.